I couldn't think of someone better to invite to punctuate uh, this series than my friend Andy Byers. Um, we, Rach and I have known Andy for quite some time now. Um, he, he was one of our first friends in North Carolina, and Rach worked for him when he was a, a chaplain and did campus ministries at Gardner-Webb University out in Western North Carolina. Uh, Andy um, conducted our wedding and did our, he and his wife Miranda did our premarital counseling. And uh, Andy also um, studied at Duke and pastored at Mount Hermon Baptist Church uh, north of Duke Forest. But these days, and for the last some time, Andy and his uh, family have lived in the other Durham in the United Kingdom as he studied and got his PhD at uh, University of Durham and has worked for them for some time now. Um, Andy is an amazing pastoral and theological and biblical mind, and I'm, I'm so glad for him to open up uh, this text from John 11. Uh, the Lazarus story. So I'm going to invite Gary Davis to read for us, and then Andy, you can take it from there. Then Jesus told him plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died, but you even know I know now that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believe in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. When she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, the teacher is here and he is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary get up quickly and go out. They followed her because they thought that she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his knees at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and greatly moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus again, greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. 
Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man said to, to him, Lord, already there's a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me. And I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Word of the Lord. I want to say thanks. I, I just can't express the, uh, the honor that it is to really get to be a part of what you all are doing. We, from a distance, from quite a physical distance, actually, uh, followed a bit of the story of your church. And, and it's so joyful for me to get to be a part of anything that the Breslins are a part of. We, uh, my, my wife and I, folks, we, we were there. We were there when, when Rachel Christensen realized that she loved this guy Brez, not just as a best friend, but as something more. And uh, I, I'm just so excited about who those people are. And guys, I can't wait to meet your kids and maybe babysit them for free like you guys did for us years ago. One day, maybe. Uh, the sermon today is going to draw on this text that Gary just read, John chapter 11. It would be helpful if you have a Bible on hand, you want to follow along through. And as Brez has pointed out, my charge is to lead us into this, uh, this confession in the Apostles' Creed that we believe in the resurrection, the resurrection of the body, and we believe in the life everlasting. And this text in John 11, it gives us a textual vista from which to reflect on this claim, and the, the credo claim itself helps us to reflect on the text. And what we'll find in this text is what happens when Jesus walks into a death scene, a scene of mourning, lament, loss, the scene of closure, and, and nothing says closure like a sealed up grave, like a sealed up tomb. What happens when the one who is himself the life, the one who came to give us life and give it to us abundantly, the one through whom life was brought forth in creation. What happens when the one who was the way, the truth, and the life shows up at a funeral wake? What happens when he shows up beside a graveside? Well, he breaks down and he cries like a broken mess. But that is not all he does. Let's pray together and then we will follow through in John 11. Lord, we come before you as resurrected and ascended. As one who sends your spirit into us. And we pray for the glory of the Father that we might know the animating power of your resurrected life in our own spirits and bodies today. Guide us and teach us as we read. Help us to see and hear afresh your wonder and your voice. In the strong name of Jesus, the highest and the best. Amen. Amen. 
All right, so John 11. Uh, the reading began with a very stark statement from Jesus to his disciples. Lazarus is dead. Now, here, here in the UK, our, uh, our, our crisis with uh, COVID-19 is, is on the wane, unlike the way it is where you all are. But for, it seemed for maybe two months there, the news footage was basically marked with numbers, and the numbers were deaths. Uh, the news seems largely built around new cases of COVID-19, new numbers of recent deaths. But the statement here that Jesus make, makes, Lazarus is dead, he's talking about something very particular. This is not just some random villager whose death merely adds to daily statistics. This, this is Lazarus, folks. This is Lazarus in Bethany. And these particulars are very important. To speak of death without particulars can be rather crass, actually. And, and earlier in the passage, those of you familiar with John 11, you'll know that the earlier Jesus heard news about this illness. First, it was an illness, all right? There is a message that, that voiced an announcement through heaving breath, someone who has urgently raced for hours probably through the heat, maybe days to track Jesus down. And that message comes not from some random unnamed group of women that Jesus had never met. The report is not about an unnamed bystander in the crowd of some obscure village he's just passing through. This is Bethany, a place Jesus knows. And this is a family he is close to, Martha, Mary, you all know them. Their brother Lazarus, this situation is very personal for Jesus. Lord, look, he whom you love is ill. That's how the news was broken to Jesus earlier. So what is his response to this urgent news of a grave illness of a close friend? His response to this 911 call from those who believe in his power to heal. Well, back in verse 6, we read this. After hearing or having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Well, you all know that I'm here at my desk in another Durham, Durham, England, and we love, we've, we've been here, gosh, it's nine years now. We, we, we've come to really love the, uh, the NHS, the, the, the National Health Service. But as Americans, we are known to make a few critiques about British things every now and then. And one of them would be the response times, the response times during emergencies, all right? When you call 999 over here instead of 911. Uh, a couple of years ago, Miranda's mom and her aunt visited us. And within an hour, bless her, Aunt Anne missed a step and she fell hard onto our hallway floor. And she just had a hip surgery. So we're really concerned. My wife called 999. She ended up being okay, but you know how long she waited on the ground? This dear woman in her 80s. It was two hours before the paramedics got here from a hospital that is one mile away. And those of us who are Americans and are, can be a little bit smug culturally might like to look down upon that response time, but let's talk about the response time of Jesus for a moment. In our text, Jesus is not fussed about a delay of two or three hours. 
The response time of Jesus is an abysmal period, not of hours, but of days. And the reason given is that this, this illness of Lazarus has a unique purpose. Death will have its final say, 100% in all human beings, but not this one, not this time, not yet. Jesus is going to do something unique, we are told. And this death, it becomes not for death's sake, but for God's sake, for the sake of God's glory. Might Jesus be playing games with everyone's shredded emotions here, just to play some amazing divine trick? Well, no, the, the story here presents what's happening as a sign. That's John's language, isn't it? This is not just a miracle that attests to Jesus' power. It is a sign, a dramatic event of power that signifies, signifies, if you will, something of who Jesus is. So this, this death is uniquely chosen as an opportunity to convey something of immense theological, Christological, and as we're going to see, eschatological, significance, significance. Jesus loved Martha and her sister, sister and Lazarus. That's from verse 5. But Jesus loved them. So there's going to be this wonderful divine act. Jesus is going to delay for the sake of God's glory, but he loves these people. So, so Jesus here is entangled in the particular, right? He's going to present some powerful universal truths, but he is entangled within the particular. He's entangled in the welfare of his friends, as well as in the welfare of God's name. And there seems to be an, a hint of internal conflict, maybe, within Jesus the way the evangelist is telling the story. Jesus delays, and he delays intentionally, yes, but, you know, he really loves them. Well, the response time of uh, God in our own lives can maybe be abysmal, right? Uh, Brez knows, I shared with him briefly that Miranda and I, with the kids, we're waiting on God for something right now. It has to do with our immigration status. And, um, you know, if you think the UK's NHS has problems meeting standards for applying to uh, Christ for help, then, then maybe we should just look at God's record in our own lives, right? And personally for me, I mean, the, I, I think about all these times we needed God to show up quickly on the scene and to provide, and yet he delayed. I was just thinking, the first time we moved to a Durham, when we moved to Durham, North Carolina, God was very late showing up to provide for us. When we moved to this Durham, he was very late. Now, God has come through for me. I, I can confess that. But never, rarely ever, on my time, at least by my uh, clock. I mean, this is the time when in Zoom, you sort of wish people were not muted and they maybe could voice an amen if they were brave enough to do so. But um, God, God hasn't come through at the 11th hour for me on many occasions. He came through well after midnight. The response time of God can seem to be abysmal, but Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And he loves me and he loves you, even those of you who, I don't know you, but many of you may, some of you may be in Bethany waiting for God to show up. And it seems too late. Well, we find that 
in, in spite of Jesus' delay, he ends up making his move. He ends up on the scene eventually. In verses 17 through 19, they set the stage for the death scene that Jesus is walking into with his disciples. Uh, to sort of create some sort of awe of anticipation, there is a knocking at my door you may hear. I don't know who it is. We'll keep moving. The scene that Jesus walks into, it is an ugly scene. And there are many death scenes taking place around the world, scenes with people who are weeping with deep, guttural pain, people confused, people scared with sorrow beyond words. Jesus walks into the scene of untimely death. And someone comes to him first. It's Martha. If you're following along, you see that she greets him with a statement that, maybe many of us have said to the Lord, or at least would say if we had the honesty and the courage to say it, Lord, if you had been here, this would not have happened. Lord, if you had been here, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And the implication here is, is expressing to Jesus, where were you? I mean, we, we sent out words. Days ago, what, what sort of response time is this? If you had been here, this would not have happened. Somehow, though, somehow Martha retains faith in her Lord. And, and though she doesn't seem to have Lazarus, her, her brother's immediate resuscitation in her imagination at all right now, she still expresses belief in Jesus in verse 22 and Many of us at certain times are going to find ourselves here with Martha. We, we cannot account for God's absence, for his delay, or for his apparent lack of sovereignty, yet still we believe somehow, in some way. But Jesus ultimately comforts Martha with theology. Not with the theology of apologetics, a defense that's made that explains everything in some tidy fashion. He doesn't give her explanations, but he gives a profession of who he is. And this is a comfort through Christology, comfort through pastoral ministry, through just talking about who Jesus is. I mean, I mean apologetics, surely it has its place, but maybe not in the face of untimely death. God just needed another angel, someone might say. And that may sound nice, but no, God doesn't need another angel. Ultimately, untimely death has happened. And no matter how desperate we may be to try to explain God, to present some rationale for his apparent failure, we often find ourselves stuck within the realm of divine mystery. And there's no satisfying account, no accessible account to explain things. Jesus here, instead of giving apologetics, instead of an explanation like, hey, God's just going to get some glory out of this in a moment, instead he gives Martha theology. And specifically, he gives her eschatology. And this is just a fancy word for referring to our theology of last things, our theology of what's God, what God is going to do eventually in the future. He says to her, Jesus says to Martha, your brother will rise again. Well, to understand this brief interaction that takes place now between Jesus and Martha, an interaction that gets right at the heart of this line in the creed 
this line about the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Uh, I'm going to show you, show you just a few slides that depict a range of views on eschatology. I mean, this is what you woke up in the morning hoping to see, right? Uh, uh, charts about models, charts on models of eschatology. Well, here's the first one that I, I want to show you, okay? Uh, is this coming through? Th this is a, um, a secular and modernistic way of thinking about our future, okay? And so what we have here, we tend to believe now in our contemporary modernistic secular society that as we sail into the future, our human ingenuity will usher us into some eventual utopia, a brave new world of peace and prosperity. God is displaced out of this model. So our hope is in ourselves. And we're breathing this in all the time, whether we recognize it or not. It's this idea that if we just have enough, you know, better education, more scientific breakthroughs, better tech, some 5G networks, right, all across the board, if we had more funding from healthcare, so forth and so on, then we will be able to sort ourselves out. But of course, the tension here in the model is that as our technology improves as scientific developments do make progress in various ways here and there we may actually be improving our society at the exact same time that we are destroying it we tend to be uh raising the potential not only of uh creating more blessing within the world but also more destruction within the world well we'll retrace a couple of millennia or so now, okay? There, there's quite a different model of eschatology that was operating in the ancient world, all right? And this here, this is a, well, this is a Greek philosophical idea of end times and eschatology. And what you have, what I'm trying to depict here on this, this, this slide is that, uh, the ancient philosophical schools tended to believe in the immortality of the soul. Plato taught that the soul is trapped within our bodies, all right? Physical life is bad. Corporeal life is bad. But once we can finally shed these old bodies, you know, that keep getting in the way of us realizing our full potential, then we'll, we will uh, you know, pass into this more glorious state where our spirits can rise in freedom all right, and be divine. So that is something that Paul has to address in a sort of uh, subtle way, at least, when he's writing to the Corinthians. This is this Platonist philosophical theology where the body is bad. All right? Bodily life is simply uh, us being in, our souls being trapped into place. One day we'll go off and be to heaven and live this wonderful life as our souls escape. That may sound familiar to you, because probably as Christians, this model is what's often being taught within our churches. That if you die, your vaporous soul will go off and be in heaven with the angels and their harps. Praise God. That's not exactly what Jesus teaches, right? But we'll get to that. Here's another model, all right? This is the early Jewish eschatological model. This is what Martha 
thinks and believes about the end times and what most Jews would have thought and believed about the end times. Most Jews, except the, the Sadducees, they didn't believe in this sort of thing. But uh, here's what's going on. All right, I'll try to walk you through the slide. Early Jews believe that we lived in the present evil age. But one day, the D-O-L, the day of the Lord, it's going to happen. And a lot of things will be associated with this day of the Lord, but the result will be the age to come will finally begin. An age of uh, new creation, all right? Uh, the age of the Messiah reigning, a kingdom of God. And Israel will be gathered back together. You'll have the judging of Gentiles, but also the drawing in of Gentiles to worship the God of Israel. The Spirit will be poured out. There are all types of, of events associated with this day of the Lord, this DOL. But one of them is this idea of the resurrection of the dead, a general resurrection of the body. Martha, you'll note, says in John 11, I know, Jesus, that Lazarus will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She is referring to this event that I'm trying to depict here. The idea is that God is the creator. He made stuff. He made us physical and bodily, and he said it is good. So the ultimate good that God wants for us as his people isn't a vaporous, spiritual, soul-like existence. It's a bodily existence. It's still uh, one in which body and soul and mind and heart are interfused, all right? But, now the model's getting complicated, all right? So if you're drinking coffee, you better get ready for a sip, all right? Th this is how Jesus shows up on the scene, and he modifies what it is that Martha believes, what early Jews believe, all right? So the day of the Lord gets broken up into two separate events. The resurrection of Jesus, or you could, we could loop into this, his entire earthly ministry. So the resurrection of Jesus and, and, and his death and his earthly ministry, but also the return of Jesus. All right, X is my shorthand there for, for Christ. And what we have here is that these events associated with the day of the Lord that the Jews were waiting for, they're still happening. They're just happening at different times. So we, we still have with Jesus, the reign, the messianic reign, the kingdom of God is happening. Gentiles are being drawn in. The spirit is being poured out. Death and disease are on these particular moments in his ministry being addressed and dealt with. But later on, there will be this wider resurrection. The general resurrection of the faithful. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 about a... Uh, he calls, it, he calls Christ's resurrection the first fruits, meaning the first batch of the harvest, signaling that the rest of the harvest is on the way. And when Jesus comes up out of the grave later in John, what's shocking is that it was just one person who comes up out of the grave. The Jews were waiting for a resurrection, but they were waiting for the resurrection of all the righteous. All right? So what... what what Jesus is doing, he's modifying this and saying that, yes, he is going to come forth out of his own grave. This has already been uh, mentioned and hinted at in John's gospel. But in doing so, it assures that the wider general resurrection is going to happen. Death will be finally defeated. New creation is going to happen. 
And that means that you and I, the church, we live in the red, in that awkward overlap of the ages. Death still has its say. Sin is still destroying lives. Darkness is still suffocating beauty. But wait a minute. Simultaneously, there is the animating power of the Spirit at work, alive within us. Sometimes someone is healed. The age to come leaps forward into our present. Sometimes the power of sin is cracked apart. People are released from addictions. They are pulled out of all these struggles of darkness and sin. The life of the age to come is now suddenly present among us through Jesus. And John the Evangelist calls this eternal life. It is the life everlasting professed at the end of the Apostles' Creed. This is a life that we will enjoy for eternity that select from our future age into the present, co-dwelling with our sinfulness and with the darkness and the death raging around us, but ultimately indestructible and permanent and forever, everlasting. So we now go back to, uh, to John 11, to this conversation with Jesus and Martha. He says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, though they die, will live. And everyone who believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is saying that I mean, there, may be, there may be times people will physically die, obviously. Paul tells us that we are still with God in some way. But ultimately, the hope that we await is one in which uh, this resurrection life of Jesus is made present to us now and will be realized again one day in the wider resurrection that Martha speaks of. Do you believe this? Jesus asks her. And we say with Martha, who may be the first confessor of this final line of the Apostles' Creed, yes, Lord, I believe. But the question lingers in the text, can Jesus make good on his modified eschatology? Does he possess the power to unhinge death? Can he make a demonstration of it? Well, before we get to the demonstration of his power, we find that Jesus runs into the other sister. The particulars are present in the scene. He runs into the other sister. Now, though he comforted Martha with eschatology, with theology, he comforts Mary in a different way. He comforts Mary with pathos, with a sharing in her pain. Look at verse 32. When Mary came, for Jesus was, and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. There's that question again. Lord, if you had been here. And it's tempting for us in these moments, uh, particularly those of us who feel called to pastoral ministry, it's tempting for us in these moments to speak on God's behalf in some way, to to offer a viable explanation for the poor response time, for the the non-existent display of divine help. But this time, God doesn't even offer here this reworked eschatology. 
Verse 33, here's what he offers. When he saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. And Jesus wept. What happens when the resurrection and the life walks into a death scene? He breaks down and cries like a broken mess. Even if, if Jesus had wanted to claim, I am the resurrection, the life to Mary. At this point, it seems that he cannot articulate just bright and hopeful theology. He is too choked up with the pain of the particulars. He eventually does get out. Where have you laid him? And when he gets to the gravesite, to the tomb, we read this, this haunting phrase again. Jesus wept. He is clearly hurting. He has seen Mary's tears. He's seen the tears of the mourners. When he breaks down weeping, the Jews say, see how he loves him. Jesus is weeping. He's troubled in spirit. The, the word translated in the NRSV is greatly disturbed. It, it implies anger, frustration. So, so Jesus Along with compassion and sympathy, he is agitated, maybe enraged at death itself. Paul also overcome with grief, with loss. And I know, and I don't know you all as a church, but all of you can, or at least will one day, be able to relate to this scene, to those combination, that combination of emotions. Jesus is showing us that theology, it's so important, but it must not only be articulated. Creeds can't just be confessed. Our theology, our creeds have to walk into death scenes where there are particulars. Sometimes the most faithful articulation of our creeds, of our theology, is weeping beside a grave that should not have had to have been filled. No one needs theology, right, that's abstracted from the reality that so abstracted that it can't speak to, to mothers digging for their children in the rubble of a disaster, that can't speak to masses huddled on the edge of a collapsed bridge. Jesus is the resurrection and the life who walks into death scenes and cries aloud. But then he tells them, move the blasted stone. I, I, I want you to try to imagine just how tense this scene now gets. You all know the ending, but just think about being in the scene here. Did he just say move the stone? Everyone is now uncomfortable. Martha speaks up. I'm not sure this is a good idea, Jesus. Move the stone. Open the grave. They move it. And Jesus now is facing this empty hole of a tomb, the, the stench of decaying flesh. It's about to waft forth outside this, this pride open grave. Jesus stands there, eyes red and moist, taking a stand against death itself. And with tears staining a dusty, dusty cheeks, he calls out in this loud voice, Lazarus. He just speaks to the dead man, Lazarus. 
The stench is real. The, the sense of dishonoring a dead body is real. The fear of being made unclean, the sheer awkwardness of it all, it's hanging in stabbing tension. And he says, Lazarus, come out. And out he comes. The demonstration that Jesus can unhinge death has been made. Now, this seventh sign, it doesn't mean that Jesus is always going to raise those whom we love prematurely. I mean, after all, Jesus, Lazarus' resurrection is going to earn him a death warrant just moments later in chapter 12. They want to kill him. And you could imagine Jesus later over a meal. Wow, thanks for that, Jesus. Thanks a lot. Now they all want to kill me. And Lazarus is going to die again. This is a sign signifying that one day all the righteous will be called forth by name. Remember, he's a shepherd that calls his sheep by name. We will all be called forth by name into eternal bodily life. But in the meantime, those of us who are figuratively dead in our spirits, we can begin to taste the eternal life of the world to come now. The time is now when we can, we can begin to, to live the life of the world that is to come in the present through the spirit that Jesus sends. And, and just as Jesus knew what was going to happen with Lazarus, so we can know that, that one day we are all going to be raised to this new life. But, but also just as Jesus wept at the graveside, we do not ignore the realities of a sin-plagued and death-ruled world. The final line of the Apostles' Creed, in that line, we confess a hopeful and joyful theology, but one that can weep by gravesides, still knowing the animating life of the Spirit. And this is because we believe in the resurrection of the body and in the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, as our bodies uh, know the heat of a summer in the deep south, uh, as, as a wind brushes against from this open window on my skin, 62 degrees, as our bodies sit uh, in seats or walk about in a home, I pray that you would remind us that you are Lord of these bodies, that these bodies have a future. And we ask that you would give us uh, the joy of the confession in this creed, that we can taste now the eternal life that animates our existence now in this present evil age overlap with age to come that will also give life to new bodies, new bodies of a kind we cannot account for. Give us the joy of waiting, but also the joy of the moment of experiencing now this life. And be with us in the dark places with your light and send us into those places. Not just with the confession on our lips, but with the sharing in of the reality of the graveside moments, just as you shared in that scene in John 11. We ask it in your name. Amen.